This is Preble Hall. Welcome to Preble Hall, a podcast about naval history from the United States Naval Academy Museum in Annapolis. Welcome to Preble Hall, the podcast of the U.S. Naval Academy Museum. My name is John Sherwood, and I'm a historian with the Naval History and Heritage Command. Today, I have the honor of hosting Thomas B. Modley. Mr. Modley is a class of 1983 graduate of the U.S. Naval Academy. After a seven-year career as a UH-1N helicopter pilot and an assistant professor of political science at the Air Force Academy, he left the Navy to attend Harvard Business School and pursue a career in the private sector. He had an eclectic career in both aviation and high tech and eventually rose to managing director at Price Waterhouse Coopers, where he was the firm's global defense network leader. From 2017 to 2019, he served as undersecretary of the Navy, and from 25 November 2019 to 7 April 2020, he was acting secretary of the Navy. He recently published a book about his tenure in the Secretariat entitled Vectors, Heroes, Villains, and Heartbreak on the Bridge of the U.S. Navy. Secretary Modley, welcome to Preble Hall. Thanks, John. Thanks for having me. So we sit here at the Naval Academy a few days before the Army-Navy game. And actually on the 7th of December, another very important date for the Navy. Tell me first about the Naval Academy and its significance to you. I thought it was very moving that one of the first things that you did when you returned to the Navy is that you taped a copy of the Midshipman's Prayer to your monitor and read that prayer every day that you served in the Secretariat. So tell me about this place and tell me about the, the midshipman's prayer for those of us not familiar with it. Sure. Well, th- this is where this location is where my career in the Navy started and really my career as a, as a young professional started. Uh, I came here from Cleveland, Ohio and had uh, the honor and privilege of meeting people from all over the country. And this, this is a great melting pot, this institution. And I learned a lot from a lot of people from different parts of the country, some of them who came from military families, others who did not. And so it was a very defining experience for me here at the Academy. And when I was asked to become the, the uh, Undersecretary of the Navy, I wanted to have my swearing-in ceremony here. Uh, and so we did it in Memorial Hall. Sometime after that, I walked over to the chapel. My wife and I, we lived here in Annapolis, and uh, my wife and I, would periodically go to church in the chapel, and um, I had read that midshipman's prayer hundreds of times over the course of my life, but at that particular point in time, uh, coming into that position in the Navy, it just re- really resonated with me. So I, I took the bulletin home, and I cut it out, and I scotch-taped it to my uh, laptop right under my right hand, and, and I would refer to it multiple times during the course of my days. And as I mentioned in the book, Every single speech, every vector that I wrote, I had that under my right hand, and uh, it helped to ground me and be focused on the mission and my duties and responsibilities, not just to my classmates, but to God and to all the other people in the country who were counting on us in the Department of the Navy to defend the country. Can you read the most important excerpts of it? Yeah, there's probably three parts of the prayer that really uh, resonated with me. The first one is where it says, "Keep, keep me true to my best self guarding me against dishonesty and purpose and indeed, and helping me so to live 
that I can stand unashamed and unafraid before my shipmates, my loved ones, and thee. And the point about my shipmates was really important because so many of my classmates, I had a very short active duty career in the Navy, seven years, um, you know, five years after flight school. But several of my classmates stayed in for 30 plus years, and I was now being elevated into a position um, where a lot of them were still in the Navy, and I was now the undersecretary. And I just wanted to make sure that they understood that, and that I understood how important it was for me not to let them down in this particular job. So that, that reference to my shipmates and my family were very important to me. And then um, there's the other part that I really liked was, uh, if I am inclined to doubt, steady my faith. If I am tempted, make me strong to resist. If I should miss the mark, give me courage to try again. And I'm pretty um, realistic that most people make mistakes, and it's really important to figure out how to learn from those mistakes, but to always be steady in your faith and to be steady in the overall mission and purpose of what the job uh, that you're doing. That's very interesting. Thank you for reading that. On the subject of education, as, as secretary, one of your key initiatives was something called Education for Sea Power, or E4S. It's a remarkable document in many ways. Uh, historically, the Navy has not placed much value on education. In the early 1970s, Admiral Elmo Zumwalt, the CNO and a class of 1942 graduate, described the, the Naval Academy in his memoir as, quote-unquote, a glorified trade school. In 2004, the Naval Postgraduate School, one of our crown jewels, was on the BRAC list, so base realignment and closure. Obviously, things have changed since then, but the problems still remain. And E4S, that report shed light on the deficiencies and challenges of naval education. It placed an emphasis on critical thinking and lifelong education. The report recommended the creation of a naval university headed by a three-star and headquartered in Newport, Rhode Island. It also recommended that a naval community college be established to facilitate education and certifications for enlisted sailors and Marines and confer associates' degrees. We are still waiting for a naval university to be commissioned, but the community college has been established and, in my opinion, is a key part of your legacy. What I admire about E4S is its emphasis on the total force, officers and enlisted, Marine and Navy. Sir, can you expound on E4S? What are the key challenges or what were the key challenges on the education front during your watch and how did E4S propose to tackle them? Did you find any deficiencies with the Naval Academy, which now is ranked number one in U.S. News and World Report's top public schools list and number three in national liberal arts colleges? Right. Well, that's a very long question, John, So, but I'll do, I'll do my best to try and dissect it into some pieces here. Your first sort of question about why we decided to embark on that, I'm very close friends with uh, Captain Mark Hagerot, uh, he, who I think you know. He's my classmate. He was a Rhodes Scholar here at the Naval Academy, and he wrote a PhD dissertation about the evolution of naval education over the past hundred years. And it, there are periods of neglect, but it's almost like a sine wave where there's an emphasis on technical education and then more broad, uh, st uh, strategic type focused education. So Mark wrote this paper, and I re I read it, and I was very impressed by it. This is well before. 
I actually went into the job. I also had some conversations with other people in town that I've known over the course of my years, a couple of four stars, uh, re- retired four stars. And what was what, what became evident is that the Navy really hadn't done a comprehensive review of their education system since 1918. Mm. So it had been 100 years before we really looked at this seriously. So I established this task force, the E4S task force, basically. It was a board of very senior people. Um, Admiral Mullen, Mike Mullen, was on the board. Uh, General John Allen, a Naval Academy graduate, was on the board. Dr. Harlan Ullman uh, was on it. Barbara Barrett, Ambassador Barrett, who later became Secretary of the Air Force, and then uh, Admiral uh, Ann Rondo. And I, I basically told them, you know, I, I, I'm, I have no preconceived notions on this. I want you to look at this and study it and give me some recommendations of what we think uh, should be, what we think should be improved. And they came back with some very comprehensive recommendations about improving to include the creation of a sort of a naval u- university type system. And so the problems, I think, are a combination of philosophical and, uh, and then practical. And the, the practical tends to follow the philosophical. So I think there was always this, there, there had been for years this, uh, this perception that education and education bills, they, that they were bill payers for other things. And so the prioritization of education uh, across the budget process was very, very low. And uh, they were always having to give up things at the end. And that's largely because there wasn't a broad strategy with advocacy at the highest levels of the department. And so what we initially did is we created a chief learning officer with the intention of eventually evolving that into the president of the Naval University System. And one of the things I did in that is, uh, you know, these offices pop up in the Pentagon all the time, but Pentagon geography really matters. And so I placed that person right across the hall from the Secretary of the Navy because I wanted people to understand that it was very important to me that we move out with that. Your comments about the Naval Community College, we did start implementing that. We actually set it up down in Quantico, and they're working with a whole network of university systems uh, to deliver online uh, education for our enlisted people, which is tremendous. They never had that opportunity before. From my understanding, that's, that's really evolving as a great success. The question about the Naval Academy, I think, is a little bit different. The Naval Academy, unfortunately, each one of these institutions, postgraduate school, war college, Naval Academy, they're all governed by different types of boards of governance. This place uh, is so high profile from a public relations standpoint that uh, the Congress is very much involved with what goes on here. Um, and the Board of Visitors are very much involved in what goes on here because it's, it's bigger and it's an undergraduate institution and it has, it has Division I sports and so it's competing at different levels with other universities. So there, there are some things I think that Mark Hagerot particularly touched on when he was here as a professor that needed to be done here. For example, the development of the cyber cyber center here. It's the first major college, university, or military school that has something like that. And that's absolutely in the right direction. We're moving into an era of uh, what John Allen calls the cognitive era, away from sort of the industrial era, where we're going to have to have people who are much more prepared for uncertainty and unpredictable circumstances. And that requires a much broader base of education, not just technical education, but an understanding of government, politics, cultures, strategy, et cetera. And there has been a de-emphasis on that at, at, at these institutions. So I think it's great that the Naval Academy is ranked by US News uh, as number one public institution. But I mean, that's a nice thing. Uh, but frankly, for me, as in, when I was a Secretary of the Navy, I didn't care about that. I wanted them to be the top place that develops naval and Marine Corps officers in the world. 
And that, those two things aren't necessarily the same. I worry about the institution chasing after ratings like that because I just don't think it, at, at the end of the day, that's not necessarily what matters with respect to training this type of, of thinkers, um, people that, that know how to think and not what to think. And so uh, that was part of the emphasis of E4S. So that's a long answer to your long question. What is the advantage of calling our galaxy of institutions, PME schools, professional military education schools, mm -hmm. a university? It's, well, it's not just in calling it. It is, it's, it, as I said, it hits on both of those things. It's philosophical and it's practical. It's philosophical in the sense that they're now united under a common command structure where you can share curriculum, you can share research. They're developing and, and driving research and study in a way that benefits the Navy as an, as an entity and the Marine Corps as entities. So the view is that if we could do that, we would really leverage these institutions much better than, they, they, as I said, they sort of operate independent from each other. And we're, I think we're sub-optimizing the benefits of that level of intellectual capacity across our education systems. So that's the philosophical piece of it. The practical piece of it is if you combine it all, that's a much bigger pot of money, and you, you put someone with much more rank in charge of it, and they can be at the table fighting for it. Part of these things are, you know, part of these things, like I said, it's some philosophy, but some of it's just pragmatics. It's Pentagon politics. You have to be able to control the purse strings and have a seat at the table. My experience was that that education was really put off to the side. And even after, even after um, E4S report came out and we submitted our, we submitted, uh, we, or the Secretary of the Navy at the time, Richard Spencer, signed out the recommendations. And I told everybody in the budget process that we're gonna fully fund all the educational institutions. The budgets came up and they weren't fully funded. It was gonna take years to get that process going. I think that's, you know, there are lots of other reasons for that, lots of other budget priorities for the Navy. I understand those very, very well. But I think if we give this piece of it to our thrift, I think we're going to pay for it in the long run. How do we give our officers and enlisted personnel more white space in their careers to further their education, whether that that's taking a course or getting an advanced degree. Their lives are so filled with responsibilities, duties, practical training, family commitments. Mm -hmm. They don't have much time. And, and the system, unfortunately, doesn't encourage them to take the time. You're correct. And the, and the, the Navy and the Navy and the Marine Corps, and the Marine Corps to a lesser degree, I think that the Marine Corps actually figured this out a long time ago under General Gray when he was a commandant, and they really started pushing in this direction. And so you see, when you meet some of these senior Marine officers, like they've had a lot of, they've had a lot of education, and they're very well spoken, and they're very broad thinkers. And I'm not saying that the, the Navy people aren't, they just haven't had the same exposure or the same opportunities, because the Navy values operational experience probably more than anything. And this is part of the problem. We, like we, we have a Navy right now uh, and sort of, you come down to the ship count number, 300 ships uh, in the Navy right now. Uh, they all need commanding officers. We can only get a th you know, have a third of them out there at any one given time. So you, you're constantly having to struggle with the maintenance cycles and everything else. And so if you were to say, all right, 
certain officers at a certain point in their career have to take a break and go get two-year degree or a one-year degree, a master's degree program somewhere in strategic studies or elect whatever, whatever the university thinks is a priority for us, then I think that's a good thing. But what that's going to do is going to increase manpower requirements. And all that stuff is then starts, you know, causing inflection points in the budget. It is a challenge, but from my perspective, that's that's really what we should be trying to to drive to drive for, because we just really need we need people, as I said, that are really prepared to manage and lead in um, an era of great uncertainty. I think one of the the brilliant aspects of the community college is that it allows our enlisted personnel to get two years of college under their belt at no cost. They don't have to use their GI Bill for that. And then they only have two more years to finish off. Maybe they, they can, maybe they decide they want to become officers and can then compete for an ROTC scholarship. Mm-hmm. But it gets them on the right track. For sure. I mean, it's, yeah, it's, it's as you said before, this is a total force thing. Um, we need this type of uh, intellectual and educational development at all levels in in uh, in the Navy and the Marine Corps. Being able to do that and be successful with the with the community college, uh, you know, was a huge win for us. And it was interesting to see how many colleges and universities in the United States wanted to participate with us in that. I mean, they were very very much engaged and interested. And you know, quite frankly, John, if, if the explosion in online learning has helped facilitate this, and, and ten years ago, fifteen, you didn't have this. But now the ability to drive content all over the place is there, and so we should be taking advantage of it. Interesting. Well, thank you for establishing that community college. So today is the 7th of December, and it is Pearl Harbor Day. Another absolutely remarkable achievement during your tenure was the naming of a Gerald Ford-class carrier after Doris Miller. Miller was an African-American mess attendant serving as a cook on the battleship West Virginia when the attack occurred. People may not realize that from the end of Reconstruction in the 19th century through 1941, black sailors primarily served as messmen and lived in areas segregated from the rest of the crew. Even as late as 1945, 40% of black sailors still served as messmen. During the Pearl Harbor attack, Miller proved that black sailors could perform just as well in combat as whites and were capable of serving in many roles, not just as messmen. Miller helped evacuate wounded sailors, including the captain of the ship, to safety. He also manned an anti-aircraft gun and is credited with downing two hostile aircraft. For his heroism, this messman-turned-warrior received the Navy Cross. Why, sir? Did you choose to name a carrier after Miller, and how did it shatter Navy tradition in terms of ship naming? Thanks for this question, because this was probably one of the greatest moments of my life, having the opportunity to do this. What what happened was, and it sort of started from just a, a series of, of, of jabs between myself and Secretary Spencer, in the summer of 2019, when we were waiting for uh, Mark Esper to get confirmed as the Secretary of Defense, Richard Spencer had to go and be the Secretary of Defense uh, acting during that process. So I was acting Secretary of the Navy for a couple weeks that summer. And I sat down and sort of had the turnover with him and he said, uh, yeah, you you basically have all the authorities that I have, you don't need to check with me on anything, but 
you can't name CVN81. And for those of you who don't know, the power to name ships, the, the authority to name ships in the United States Navy rests solely with the Secretary of the Navy. It's one of those strange things in, uh, in the Department of Defense that uh, it, it really one of those strange and interesting and unique powers uh, of the Secretary. And um, so I, you know, I, I joked with him. I said, well, I said, sir, you know, I, I kind of looked at the law and I think I actually can do it as acting secretary. And he said, he said, and I, I joked with him. He said, don't do it. And so like an hour later, the general counsel came down. I said, do you have any questions about your authorities? And I said, yeah, I, I'm, I think I'm pretty good. And he goes, and by the way, he's like serious. You can't name CVN 81. <laughs> and so I, I hadn't even thought about that. Four months later, Richard leaves the department. He was dismissed by Secretary Esper over this Petty Officer Gallagher situation. And we had a year left in the department, in, in our tenure at least, uh, depending on what would happen with the upcoming election. And I was the acting secretary, and there are five ships that still hadn't been named. You can name them once the money's appropriated by Congress. So I sat down um, and said, I'm, we're going to name these. And uh, one of the things that I talk about in my book is um, Jerry Hendricks, who's uh, I'm sure you all know is a big navalist in Washington, D.C., and he sent me a text right after I became the acting, and he said the average tenure of an acting Secretary of Defense is 110 days. And so I came up, I'm very prone to making top 10 lists. It's helped organize my thinking around things. I came up with 11 top 10 lists, 110 things that I wanted to accomplish if my tenure was going to last 110 days. And on that list, on that fir- the first list was the naming of these ships. And so as far as CVN 81 was concerned, I, that summer I had talked to him, Secretary Spencer, about possibly naming the ship after an African-American sailor. There was some controversy going on because of the fact that Stennis, Senator Stennis, one of the ships is named after, was pretty much a known segregationist. And so there, there were some people looking to try and change the name of the Stennis. And generally these carriers are named, if they're named after people, they're named after presidents or prominent members of Congress. And I just didn't, I wanted to name it after a sailor, frankly. And I wanted to name it after uh, an African-American sailor specifically. So I started looking, you know, even before I became acting at some of the the heroes, uh, African-American sailor heroes from Civil War. But then I, I, I put a little more thought to that and thought that that would probably not be good. That was a time when the country was divided and uh, a horrible war was fought over that division, even though there was great heroism. But I had spent so much time over the previous two years meeting World War II veterans and just became so impressed with them and enamored with them that I assembled a group of retired African-American admirals, uh, some people who people listen to this podcast probably know, like uh, Sink Harris and uh, J.C. Caesar and, and a few others, uh, Dwight Shepard. And I, these are just guys I, I knew. And I said, hey, here's the mission. I'm gonna, I want to name CVN 81 after an African-American sailor and the criteria are World War II and preferably enlisted. And so they came back to me a week later and they said, they basically said, sir, it has to be Doris Miller. And so um, I, I did a little bit of research on Doris Miller, did my staff, I, I, I checked, uh, I'm pretty sure we checked with Gina Akers at the Historical Foundation and, and talked to her about that a little bit. And um, everyone was very enthusiastic about it. So we decided to do that and we named the ship and announced it on uh, Martin Luther King's birthday in Pearl Harbor in 2020, in January. And it was a tremendous day. And it was interesting to see, th- they, they did a tremendous job out there. 
I got to meet Doris Miller's uh, nieces and um, their his grandnephews, and it was just it was just a fantastic experience. And it was interesting to see the reaction, mostly from the enlisted people, how proud they were that a ship was being named after an enlisted a ship of that size that's generally named after presidents or or people that everybody knows being named after somebody who's one of them. To me, it was a uh, it was a really really uh, gratifying day. Currently in the Navy. Uh, we have a very diverse enlisted force. We also are, ha- are having struggles to retain people in the enlisted force. A move like this helps. H- how do you feel about diversity in the Navy? What are your thoughts well, on that issue? Yeah, I mean, that's a, that's a difficult question to answer. Of course, you know, we live in a diverse country. We have people from all different parts of the country. And I think I mentioned in the early part of this interview that when I came here, I met people from parts of the country that I had never met before. I grew up in Northeast Ohio and Cleveland. Most of my friends in high school were Jewish. There were kids I met here who had never met a Jewish person in their whole life. And, but I had never met really anybody from Alabama, you know, or from other parts of the country. So because of the, the, the way that academies constituted, you know, all these congressional districts get their members in here, it's that's how it's distributed. You get this wide swath of America that's here. It's always been the case that, at least in the latter half of the last century, that we've had a, a very, very diverse force, racially, for sure. I think um, it used to be a lot more diverse uh, socioeconomically than it is now. But you know, diversity is important because, from my perspective, we're a diverse country, and everybody in this diverse country, people who are from whatever group, should have a stake in defending it. So I think it's very important um, because when people come into the military, they, most people who come in don't stay in. They come in for a short amount of time, and some of them, their first real recognition of what it means to be an American and to represent America in other parts of the world, this is it, while they're in the Navy or the Marine Corps or the Army. And they come away, I believe, most of them with a greater appreciation for the country, and that's really a good thing for us. So the more you can spread that out across the wide swaths of the population, the better it is. My father uh, escaped from Hungary in 1948 uh, from behind the Iron Curtain. He came back, he, you know, tried to go to all these different countries and the United States offered him an opportunity to come here, but the deal was he came here for a year, learned English, and then he had to enlist in the army and go back over and be an interpreter in Berlin. And so because of that, he met I got his best buddies, one guy from Alabama, one guy from New Jersey, and they hung out together, and he learned about what it means to be an American, and he served for three years and came back, and you know, he just had an appreciation for it. And so I think it's really, I think it's important that we do that and it's not exclusive. Now, there's other elements of diversity too. And I worry that um, we don't have enough people coming from quote unquote elite institutions, uh, higher education, of higher education there, you know, and it's become a little bit of a family business. You have mostly 80% of the kids that are coming in now are from military families. And I don't think that's, I don't think that's necessarily good. I'm not sure when they're looking at diversity metrics, they're looking at that, um, but they should be. Uh, they should be looking at more uh, broad bases of understanding of what diversity is. Speaking of the Gerald R. Ford class, I, I interviewed um, Spencer 
not long ago, and one of the things that absorbed a lot of his time and energy as SecNav was the Gerald R. Ford class and the delays and cost overruns. It was a quantum leap in technology, but the Navy paid for that in terms of dollars and time. Mm -hmm. I can't argue with that. It was a, and probably the worst part about it, uh, at least during our tenure, was that it was on the president's radar as an example of how basically the Navy couldn't do anything right. And um, I felt that was a very dangerous place for us to be as an institution uh, when our most expensive asset was not viewed very favorably by the commander-in-chief. So uh, when I came in, I think I'm pretty sure that's number on my top 10 list, number one, number one priority was called Fix the Ford. And that was trying to get everybody who was engaged in that, every CEO, every company that provided parts, every senior officer in the Navy involved. And one of the first things I did is I, 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 I asked, you know, where's the PEO for carriers? Like, where, where is he? And, or the person who was responsible for the carrier program. And it was an admiral that was up here in DC. And I'm like, what are you doing here? Said, you need to be down on that ship and you need to be there every day. And it was, it was sort of incredible to me, the amount of resistance I got from the acquisition community for that. But to me, it was, it's just one of those things. It's just a no brainer. Um, you know, coming from, you know, my business experience, if, you know, if you've got a problem, the senior leader has got to be involved trying to solve that problem. So uh, my understanding is it's, it's perform performing pretty well right now in the med, which is great. But, you know, the cost overruns are, they're overruns and they're gone. Uh, you're never going to get that money back. But hopefully we've got a lot of learning from that process that as we proceed with the next three, that, uh, that we can, you know, come down the cost curve on them. How do you stand on the whole debate going on in naval circles about the efficacy of the carrier? in modern warfare. You're friends with yes. Jerry Hendricks. Yeah. Um, well, this is another thing that I tried to do, and I explained this in my book. When, when we bought the last two carriers, the last two in the Ford-class carrier, which were the, the Miller and the Enterprise, we did a two-carrier buy for those in order to keep, purchase long lead items in advance and keep the shipyards going. And the estimates were that saved us like 3 or $4 billion, maybe $5 billion to do it that way. But the best part of that decision, from my perspective, was we didn't have to make another carrier decision for another seven years. And so I set up, a I set up basically a, a group that I called Future Carrier 2030 to take a look at what, you know, what should the future of the carrier be. Again, assembled a very high-level group of people. Secretary Sec former Secretary Lehman was on it, former Secretary John Warner, Senator Warner was on it. And a couple other people, I tried to make it bar bipartisan. They started their work at looking at it, and I told them, and, and S Senator Warner was very clear to me. He goes, he goes I'm only going to do this if you're willing to accept the fact that there's a possibility that when this study is over, we're going to say we shouldn't build any more carriers. And I said, I'm not prejudging pre any of your conclusions. You know, I, this is why I'm not making this decision. I want some outside people to take a look at it. Well, ironically, the day after I left, the day after my resignation, they completely disassembled the whole group, and so they never had any findings or anything. So I don't know, frankly, what they're doing in terms of looking at that, but it is a very, very expensive asset, and it concentrates a lot of firepower in one place. The arguments for the carrier proponents are you can't replicate that firepower, you can't replicate that sortie generation, 
and it's incredibly survivable because it is so big and and uh, and uh, and so on. There are other people that argue the opposite. So I don't know. I think they're. I think that eventually they're going to have to come to some kind of reckoning because we're getting close to it. basically that group started in 2020. It's now almost 2024. So it's been four years, and I don't think anyone's really looked at it in a concentrated way. So that four of that seven-year window is now gone, and I don't really know what the Navy's going to do. Interesting. Before we turn to the TR incident, are there any other achievements during your tenure that you want to address? I prefer to have other people judge what the achievements might might have been. I am you know, very, very proud of my time there. I worked with, uh, and I was able to bring in some really, really talented people I brought a lot of people in from the private sector to help um, people that I worked with before uh, who came in and sacrificed quite a bit of salary and and sleep <laughs> to come in and help us try to, to, to drive some level of transformation, particularly in the business mission. And so to me, that, that's, you know, that's, that's, uh, that's very gratifying. And I, I hope, you know, I, I put a lot of principles out there when I was in the job, principles of it, talked a lot about agility and and what's required for large-scale transformation and education and all these things. And your only hope can be, because we have such a tumultuous political cycle, that some of those things stick with some of the people that stay there for a long time. I call this these big bureaucracies organizational slinkies. And you can pull on that slinky, and if you pull long enough and hard enough, that resistant tail is going to come along. But once you relieve that pressure, it's very difficult to keep it coming along. What you hope is some of that center part of the slinky has made it, and then the back comes up just a little bit, and then it can move forward. But we don't, we're not really designed. Um, when you look at successful companies in the private sector who have been able to make major transformation in both their business processes and systems and strategies, it really requires a lot of continuous executive leadership that's 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 not uh interrupted and intermittent and unfortunately our political cycles create that for us so i have some thoughts about how maybe we could fix that over the long run i i think that perhaps maybe looking at the service secretaries similar to the fbi director as a you know giving putting people in there who are sort of bipartisan but but they're given a 10-year fixed term and they can assemble their teams, and they're given a little bit of flexibility to get around some of the civil service rules so they can move people and put people, the right people in the right seats on the bus. I think that would be very, very helpful. But I don't see anyone talking about that, and so I'm not optimistic that that's, that's going to happen. Did the AUKUS deal, did that, was, did that transpire under your watch? Or it, was being, it was being discussed. It was announced uh, in the Biden administration. But you worked on it. My team was working on it, yeah. The folks in, in the Undersecretary of the Navy for Policy were working on that. Is that a model for future big-ticket item procurement, working with allies and partners? Well, I, we've been trying to do that with the F-35 as well. I think that's working reasonably well. But it's, again, that's also a very expensive program that's exceeded cost expectations. You're also subject to the political issues. So, you know, Turkey was a really important partner in the F-35, and now they're out. And so, you know, we're having to juggle and change and, and, and think about it differently without Turkey being a member of that, of that partnership. The AUKUS thing, uh, the AUKUS thing, I think, 
I, I don't know how else you can possibly do it because the, the level of technology and the manufacturing capacity and ability to do that really only resides in two places that are friendly. So, <laughs> so I don't know how else you can do it. I don't know that the Australians could develop that uh, indigenously. I, I, I doubt it. I think they're going to have a big enough challenge trying to manage it you know, a nuclear submarine force. I mean, that's something they've never done before. The, the challenge I see for us is it's going to impact our ability to deliver what we need to do for ourselves. Unless there's some major signals from the Congress uh, to industry that this is a priority and we need to ramp up production significantly, I think we're going to still struggle. And even if they did do that, we have a skills shortage issue that is... Um, also pretty pretty difficult to handle and that those those are probably like my busy, biggest concerns about our navy from a strategic perspective is that even though the chinese have a 400 ship navy now of i would say largely less capable ships than our 300 or so they have the cap capacity now to reconstitute in a conflict that we just simply don't have that has a lot of value and i don't it's going to take a while attention all hands I'm ending this episode here. In the next episode, Secretary Modley and I will discuss the 2020 COVID-19 outbreak on the aircraft carrier Theodore Roosevelt and Secretary Modley's subsequent decision to relieve the aircraft carrier's commanding officer, Captain Brett Crozier. It's an interesting and thoughtful discussion, and I encourage everyone to tune in. This is Preble Hall. Rebel Hall is in no way intended to reflect the official positions of the Department of the Navy or the Naval Academy.